uh, we're going to be looking at the journey Israel took on their way to the promised land. The areas we're going to investigate are as follows. The song of the sea, the song at the sea in Exodus 15, Sinai and God's call, rest in the land in a place of habitation. There is no doubt in my mind that God has issued a call to inhabit lands of promise. And what I mean by this is the very fact that God has spoken a word toward us for our community, for our families, and perhaps even individually. We can be assured of His presence in the midst of the journey to the promise He has prepared in our subsequent habitation of those promised places. And what I mean by habitation is the place where He has established us, the place where He asks or causes us to dwell, and the place where we are meant to dwell. My concern, however, is in the fact of taking for granted the journey and even the possession of what God has desired and what He has given us. This is to say, I am determined to be mindful of God's provision in the wilderness, which possesses the echo of others who could only murmur and to inhabit the land with such intentionality that nothing is wasted. Hey, I don't want anything to be wasted in this journey. God's too good and too powerful and too omniscient. He, I don't want anything to be wasted. Amen. If God can do the things that I see Him do in Scripture, man, I don't want to sell Him too short. Amen. I don't want anything to be wasted. So throughout the lessons to follow, we are going to embark on a journey to understand Israel and God in a way that comes alongside our own situation today. Ultimately, if we will receive what the Word has for us, there will not only be insight into Scripture, but also a stirring of faith. And I say this because as I have studied and sought God, my faith has been stirred. With that said, do not doubt today the promises that we possess. Do not doubt the power of God to cause us to overcome. Do not doubt His plan to grow us up into people of faith He has prepared for the habitation of His great promises. And do not doubt that where He is, so also is the miraculous. Our lesson today begins right in the middle of a miracle. Israel had been backed up against the shores of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army hot on their trail. I can only imagine what the scene must have been like. The contrast of the relaxing sound of birds in the air, the sea breaking on the seashore in rhythmic waves, feeling of mist possibly landing on the faces of the people. How beautiful it must have been to see and experience the sea after having been in Egypt for so long. I wonder how they felt as they looked over the water that day with the knowledge that a great army behind had assumed and amassed to overtake them. Furthermore, what is it like to see Moses walk up to the waters of the Red Sea and to feel the wind surge as he waved his hands over the water? The emotional roller coaster must have been quite something as they went from joy due to their freedom to fear and dismay as they looked behind them and they saw that they were trapped by Pharaoh's army. Finally, ending though with wonder as God performed a miracle of deliverance. 
The waters parted as great walls formed, as if a giant gate had been pried open to the opposing shore. Little did Israel know that they were literally passing through a grave. For as soon as they emerged on the opposing shore, the walls, they collapsed. The gate was closed and the mouth of the, of the grave was shut. And all the bondage of Israel's last 400 years was swallowed by the sea. I think I've had that experience in my life today where all the bondage of Egypt was swallowed by a grave and that is called the baptism. Hallelujah. That is called my baptism into the name of Jesus. That day, the bondage of my past, I was liberated from that bondage. It was gone. It was forgotten. And this today is our story. This today is my story. For this picture is a type and shadow of baptism where the years of our bondage to sin was swallowed up by the grave never to be remembered. I'm thankful for that today. This is the place where we died to sin, being buried with Christ. And when we emerged on the other shore, we became a people of the name. A people prepared unto the Lord for an inheritance. Unfortunately, Israel's story is slightly different at this point than ours, but it's important to understand that Israel's crossing of the Red Sea is a type and shadow of baptism. This is a place where God demonstrated Himself as a deliverer, and His act, and this act, was meant to serve as an assurance to Israel for what was to come. However, Israel had a problem. And this problem could also be ours if we do not let God, God's work be done, if we don't allow Him to transform us. See, this was a people who were ingrained with a slave mentality. They were always seeing their walk with God in light of their bondage under Pharaoh. For them, it was not possible to be given something for nothing. You see, Israel, under their bondage, they were whipped. They were told to go do their labors. They were mistreated in all sorts of ways that would just boggle our minds. But they were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. And so for them, they thought, well, if I'm going to get nourishment from Pharaoh, if he's going to supply my water, if he's going to supply my food, then it just means that I have to get beat all day and I have to wear myself into an early grave because of all the work I do. But God said, you know, I'm not going to whip you. I'm not going to cause a heavy burden to be upon you. Just come serve me and just be in obedience to me. Just recognize how holy and powerful I am. I'll give you water. I'll give you food. And I won't beat you. And I won't cause you to labor in a way that's going to wear you into an early grave. You see, Israel could never get past that slave mentality that said, God requires this of me to get this. You know, uh, in such a way as that they were beaten and they were enslaved and they were in bondage because we know that God's yoke is easy. Therefore, it is likely their faith was always stifled by the belief. Their perceived suffering in the wilderness was the price they had to pay under this new God. And that's a dangerous place to be. To think that, well, my... This suffering is just something that I have to go through because this God is also like Pharaoh. You know, 
this God is like Pharaoh, so I have to suffer and not have food because that's his demand upon me. But that's not his demand. God is not like Pharaoh. God gives freely. God gives water. He gives, he gives bread and he feeds us and he nourishes us. And so their perceived suffering was nothing but that. It was perceived. Because their slave mentality literally kept them from trusting God. It literally kept them from trusting God. Because they remained in the bondage of, of Egypt. Even though they had been delivered. So, the lack of trust they had in God led to disobedience. Time and time again. But there's a few things that we see here in, in this whole story of them coming through the Red Sea. And I want to first say that sometimes the miraculous can sometimes seem like a scary place. You know, I can't imagine walking through that sea as the walls split so high above me and with Pharaoh behind me. I mean, how, how terrifying must that have been? But they were right there in the middle of a great miracle that God was doing. How magnificent and wondrous it, it was to behold it, to experience it. You know, I've went into hospital rooms before. And I didn't know that I was right in the middle of a miracle. And it seemed kind of scary. You know, it was a little bit, it was a little bit terrifying. I wouldn't say that it, I don't know, terrifying is a little bit strong. But, um, you know, something keeps you, something just is a, uh, causes you to be a little bit, uh, on edge, you know, you walk into a situation and someone's laying there and they've been through surgery or maybe a terrible circumstance has happened and they've lost a leg or they have a, you know, uh, other problems and you, you, or, or they're dying and you walk into the room and they say, I need help. And you, in that very moment, you realize how helpless you are as a human being to help them. We're, we're helpless to do anything. And so that can, be, that can be scary, and maybe that's what Israel was feeling. They, they were helpless in that situation. But despite knowing that I was helpless, and despite knowing that, hey, I feel a little bit afraid, I prayed with them anyway. I said, you know what? I can't help you, but God can help you. Where is your faith at? What do you believe God can do? Whatever you believe God can do, I believe with you. God can do it one particular situation I remember walking into the room and a lady uh, I've told I've shared this testimony before but this lady had something going on with her that she was curled up like in a like the best way I can describe it is like a spring it was just curled up in, in a almost a fetal position and twisted around she could barely talk and and she said and I said I was just talking to her she could barely have a conversation to with me and I said hey um you know, I can't imagine what you're going through right now. And it seems, and I shared it with her. I said, it seems really scary. And I said, what, what can I pray with you about today? And she said, pray for me to be free. And I was like, I believe God can do that. And I prayed a prayer over her. I prayed a prayer that the, whatever was causing to bind her would be gone and would leave her presence and would come off of her. I didn't pray a prayer of healing. I prayed really a prayer of rebuke in a very soft way. 
whatever powers are holding this are holding stated name be loosed be free I walked into the room the next day and she was sitting up in a chair able to have a conversation eating a bag of chips hey God's able it might seem a little scary but that's when you might be right in the middle of a miracle where God wants to do a work where God wants to set someone free and so we need to recognize that about the miraculous we have to act on faith and when we act on faith it's our statement to God that we trust him we trust you God to do something with the little that I'm giving you which is my trust which is my faith which is my obedience so when we trust God we don't have to worry about his provision we just step into it we just step in it and speak a word we just step in it and pray a prayer of faith or say Lord do a work believe with believe with the person or believe in whatever situation you're in so another thing that we need to look at is that the parting of the Red Sea the parting of the Red Sea was step one of God's plan in preparing the people for the promise you see the people that came out of Egypt they weren't ready for war and so in their journey uh, the conversation between God and Moses is that hey let's not take the route of the Philistines or the Philistines right now because if we go that way the people will repent if they see war so they'll return back to Egypt so the people weren't quite ready yet to, to go into war or to have a or have a fight on their hands and so even though Israel was insufficient in being able to fight God provided for them and so sometimes I think that maybe we can make an excuse for ourselves we can say well I don't have this or I'm not strong enough for this or I can't do this but whenever we just go and follow God we don't have to worry about that because even if we're not prepared for war he's gonna protect us he's gonna provide he's gonna do works hallelujah if you believe that why don't we just clap our hands today Lord I believe you Jesus I believe you to provide even when I'm not capable, Lord. Amen. This brings us to the next segment of this lesson, beginning with Exodus 15, also known as the Song at the Sea. The biblical scholars Osborne and Hatton provide this comment concerning chapter 15. The basic theme is the celebration of Yahweh's victory over Israel's greatest enemy and the founding of a new nation of his chosen people. The brief references to crossing the sea and moving to a new land are interspersed with outbursts of praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh. This is the new nation, the chosen people, who God is moving to a new land. And hopefully we can resonate with Israel on this point. As we come forth out of our baptism with a new name for our identity, we step into the calling of inhabiting a new land of promise. Just as Egypt had been the land of captivity, the land of promise is the place of peace, prosperity, the miraculous, and the abiding presence of God. So Israel is one step closer to entering this place as they exit the Red Sea, and this is where they begin to sing. Scholars have pointed out in Exodus 15 being the pivotal point of the book and that this chapter was used among the community as a common text for worship. So just as we would come and we would sing a song, 
Just as we have songs here, this, is, this was remembered and celebrated, where they went and what they did, maybe in their feasts or their get-togethers. So this was a song that they recounted to, together as a community. And so I would just like to share with you a little bit about the outline. So the outline of Exodus is Exodus 15, the first portion of it is, or the song at the sea is split into three main headings. The first is called, Yahweh has defeated the Egyptians. And then after Yahweh has defeated the Egyptians, there's three things that happen in the song. There's a confession, there's a narrative, and then there's a response. And then the second part, Yahweh is greater than all the gods, and that's 15, 7 through 11. Again, followed by confession, narrative, and response. It's important for us to get that because we're going to come back to it. And then three, Yahweh will establish his people. This is the last part of the song. So they moved from Yahweh has defeated the Egyptians to Yahweh is greater than all the gods to Yahweh will establish his people. It's pretty big stuff. Followed by confession, narrative, and response. So basically when I say, when I say that, they, they had a statement about what they believed about God. It was based upon the story or what they experienced with God and it caused them to have motion or action. It caused them to have a response. So we'll not be covering the whole of this poem. However, there are a few important scriptures to take a closer look at in order to get some idea of how all these events had affected Israel. Let's go to Exodus uh, 15.2. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare Him a habitation, my father's, house, my father's God, and I will exalt him. So this verse provides two important declarations of God's power uh, Israel has come to understand. The Lord is my strength can be understood as the Lord causes me to be strong. And that's another example of what we just talked about. Whenever we're not capable of things, it literally means God causes us to be strong. He caused Israel to overcome. He caused Israel to sing a song at the sea. They weren't ready for war, but God delivered them. So he caused them to overcome. The other two important statements are, one, the Lord is their song, and two, they will prepare him a habitation. This is where we make a turn into what God is really intending to do with Israel, but let's first consider what, we, what they mean by the Lord is my song, which takes us to verse 13. 15:13. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. This verse falls under the stanza entitled, Yahweh will establish his people. So they're singing this song about their redemption under the heading of Yahweh will establish his people which means we've moved from Yahweh having defeated the Egyptians in the first part of the song to the reasons for why they're singing and why God has delivered them. So why is the Lord their song? Because, quite simply, God has redeemed them. God has redeemed them. That redemption happened whenever they walked through the sea and all of their past was, for, was broken. All the bonds, all the chains, all the whippings was left in the sea. And this was their redemption. 
they could not have sung this song at any other point in the hundreds of years of their bondage. This was the only time in their history they were able ever to sing this song. This is literally the song of the redeemed. Amen. Likewise, perhaps we also will join the four and twenty elders who will begin singing unto the Lord in Revelation. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I'm excited to be able to sing that song. I'm excited to be able to sing the song in, today in hope that I look to another place, seeing God as the overcomer. Why don't we give the Lord a hand clap of praise today? <laughs> I wonder what would happen if we could lift our faith to that glorious day and let the song of our redemption arise in our hearts as a prophetic utterance of God's power to establish His people. What does my praise say? What do my actions say? What does my fervency say? Hey, I am redeemed. I once was lost in sin, but, O oh Lord, You saved my soul from Pharaoh and his kin. The redemption song comes with it a personal statement, a faith flowing out of who God is to you and what He has done for you. The kind of song, when it gets into the way we live, is like intercession. Our song fuels our worship. It fuels the words we speak in prayer. It fuels our vision, and it's fuel to our trust. If God brought me out of that, what other wonders are still before us? Amen. Praise God. If God brought me out of that, what wonders are still in front? The next part of verse 13 is a declaration of God establishing His people by bringing them into His habitation by His own strength. This is why Israel says in verse 2 that they will prepare His habitation. Unfortunately, Israel fails more than once to carry through on this declaration. How many times did they fail to see God inhabiting the camp, inhabiting Mount Sinai, and even his habitation of the promised land, which they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. If God promised the land of Canaan to Israel, then he was already at work preparing a way ahead of them. I can say this knowing what was said to Joshua as he was preparing to succeed Moses and enter into the promised land, Deuteronomy 31.8. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. Israel missed the mark of their good intentions to prepare the habitation of the Lord. But in the coming weeks we'll talk more about these places of habitation, but for now we know that God had plans for them to prosper. One can also draw a conclusion that Moses is imparting to Joshua insight into how Moses himself understood God. Today I hear the words of Moses echo in my soul, as they did in the day he told Joshua, The Lord goes before me. He will be with me. He will not fail me, neither forsake me. I will not fear, 
nor be dismayed. The land they were called to inhabit was a land of promise, but it was also a land of conflict. It was a place where they would encounter many battles, many things that might be frightening to them, but God was with them. He went before them, and He goes before us. The Egyptian generation of Israel was not ready for war, as I said, but this generation that God had raised up under Joshua, they were ready to commit to fulfilling the song that was saying on the day of their deliverance. The song that was sung was full of hope, full of hope that God, what God was going to do, and God was going to do it. He was going to do it, but there were some things that they, that Israel, because of their mentality, couldn't put into action to actually see the promises that God wanted to, to do. Likewise, to what degree are we ready to commit to the song born in our heart as we consider the places in our life His redemption has touched? So when we think about our redemption, what song does faith birth in our spirit? What way do we, who do we know God to be? So to bring this down into something applicable, I want to return back to the song at the sea and the way that it was set up. It was set up with a confession, a narrative, and a response. The day that I met God in baptism, that day was a day that I came to know God in a completely different way than I had never than I had ever known him before. And I think that I stand here with a group of people who have also shared that experience. For me, as a child, uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but there was a lot of things that were pretty scary happening around me. A lot of things. And my, my parents always kept me safe, sure, but as a kid, you know, sometimes, you, sometimes there's that feeling of safety that might not always be there. And sometimes I felt that way. I didn't have anyone else to turn, well, I had mom and dad to turn to, but I needed to turn to my spiritual father for, for the help that I needed in dealing with fear. When I went into baptism, and I went under those waters, I don't know if I op- actually opened my eyes under, under the water, but whenever it was under there, it was like a bright light. And I remember it clearly today, as I did back then, it was powerful and when I came out of those waters I came to identify Jesus as the Lion of Judah like I had never identified with him before see he was my protector he was fierce he was the God that whenever he roared it made the one that seeks and and goes about like a lion seem like nothing but a kitten kitten meowing. See, my God, my Lion of Judah is fierce and powerful. And so that caused a response in my life as I saw God change my narrative, change my story from being a scared little kid to a kid who trusted in God to be the Lion of Judah in his life. And I was able to walk into rooms that were a little scary and know that my God was with me. I was able to walk into other situations and know, hey, my God is with me. To walk into places 
in, in, in uh, other countries and know that my God was with me. So I ask you today, whenever you experienced God in that way and you came up out of the waters, what did God do in your life? Did He give you the power and the strength to slay giants? Did He lift you up on eagle's wings and carry you out of your circumstance? And if He did, my question is, are you still slaying the giants? Are you still taking this message and helping others be lifted up on wings of eagles? Because our confession in our narrative demands a response. Our redemption song, that's what it is. So I wonder if we're carrying through on our redemption song. Whenever we think upon the Lord and all He's done for us. When we think about the song that we're able to sing. What's our response? I can go into conflict to prepare His habitation knowing He has gone before me. He's calling me to do more, to see more, to know Him more. Some songs, like I said, can't be sung until a redemption experience has taken place. And what I mean by that is sometimes as we live by faith, it's easy to forget to extend broken places to God continually. We get broken and we leave it deep down inside and we forget to bring it up to God to let His redemption touch it again. And again, however many times it takes. And that can hinder our song. But it's also part of our song. So this whole song of the sea has motion. And seems to progress in clarity as it continues. The next verse is less vague about where people are going to settle. Or where the people are going to settle. Let's go to Exodus 15 and 17. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. This is the last verse where O Lord is used. And it's used throughout all of the sea at the, uh, song at the sea. Osborne and Hatton provide some insight to this in their comment. O Lord in verses 6, 11, 16b through 17, seem to function as refrains to the brief accounts of what Yahweh did, and still does, in controlling the history of His chosen people. In this sense, when a scripture possesses, O Lord, it seems to not only be a refrain, but a statement of what Israel believes God has done, and what He is doing for the future of Israel. See, God is beyond time, and the verses where, O Lord, is you seem to indicate a prophetic nature. When God says He's going to do something, the creative power of His words reach into the past, the present, and the future, and nothing can stop it. See, this is why prophecy can have more than one fulfillment in the Bible. But with that said, there is some debate about the mountain of the Lord and what it means here. But the O Lord was significant. Because it was their declaration that, God, we still believe in what you're going to do. Does it mean, uh, so does this mountain mean Mount Sinai? Does it mean Mount Zion in Jerusalem or my, Mount Zion as the new Mount Sinai? 
I'm not convinced it's either or. Rather, it's more likely uh, both and. God appeared in power and glory on each occasion, with the mountain abode representing His eternal reign. See, these mountaintop experiences will play an important role throughout the Bible, especially after this account of Exodus 15. When God begins to lead them, He leads them through the wilderness and He goes to Mount Sinai. So we're going to talk about that next week. But I, I wonder, likewise, in our lives, when God determines to plant us, like He does in Exodus 15, He says, And plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. So I wonder if there can be some resistance to that. You know, Moses had some resistance to where God wanted to plant him before he ever started this journey in his call, what's called the call narrative. Moses kept bargaining with God. Oh, I can't do it. Well, I'll give you Aaron. Oh, I can't do it. God gets mad, says, you know. <laughs> so there's some resistance there. A history of being resistant to where God wants to plant us. So I wonder what would happen if we could be open to that. And that's, I think, a lesson that we see here. To be satisfied in the places where God plants us and see it as a promise. And see it as promised places. In fact, perhaps even now, God is calling you to a holy place where He intends to plant or establish you. But there is a preference for the sanctuary you built or we built with our own hands. The place is needing to be torn down. These places might be a comfortable religious observance, which are not the places God desires to plan us. Rather, He desires to plan us in holy places that He has personally fashioned for us to inhabit with Him. And that's special. Think about that. The God of all glory is personally fashioning places for you to be planted. That's a thought. That's a powerful thought. He has crafted it for you. A gift. A place for you to be planted. For us to be planted. But in expositing this, I will continue. But that's something for you to think about. But this again requires learning to trust and walk into places of promise with the boldness and assurance Moses provided to Joshua. God is with me, and He goes before me. God is with me, and He goes before me. So I wonder in our life, when we consider the things God has spoken to us, what does our soul say, O Lord, to? What do we say, O Lord, about in our prayer? Do I hold as a prophetic utterance of God's promise? Oh Lord, you're going to save my family. Oh Lord, you're going to deliver my family. Oh Lord, you're going to help my friend. Oh Lord, you're a healer. You're going to heal my body. Oh Lord, I'll pray the prayer of faith and believe. Oh Lord, I'll worship. Oh Lord, I'll seek you diligently. So I say, what do we say, O oh Lord, about in our lives when we pray unto God? If God said it, I can count on it happening. And if I can count on it, my soul can lift up a shout that says, O oh Lord. 
God will bring us into greater places of promise when we are planted in the right spot. We'll see things that we never expected. We'll see in the hospital, when God planted me in the hospital as a chaplain, I can't say that I was too excited about some of the things I would see. But man, he blew my mind. Exceeding and abundantly above all that I could ask or think. He did it there. (laughs) And I testified today, oh Lord. (laughs) Where God is executing his will is where he desires for us to dwell. And if we'll let that get into us, if we'll let the words, oh Lord, resonate in our souls in prayer and faith and belief in the song of our redemption. Man, what a deeper place in God we can have. What a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship, a deeper walk. Ultimately, Israel had a big problem trusting God, though. And we see this great wonder of God redeeming them out of Egypt, followed by their song of worship to God. But it would only be a little longer before they began to murmur. The text brings this scene to the forefront in the very same chapter as Israel approached bitter waters. They had just witnessed the mighty miracle of God defeating the armies of Pharaoh and splitting the waters of the Red Sea. However, they were unable to trust God to provide for them as they became thirsty. The next portion of Scripture has a lot of depth and is really the cornerstone of this lesson. So let's go to that. Exodus 15 and 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Only three days out from their redemption experience, they began to say, I thirst. They began to start fearing. Only three days out from their journey, it seems as if, they had gotten used to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. That's pretty, that's pretty hard to do, but I would think, but that's what happened. See, they got used to the way God operated, or how they thought God operated. And that's something to talk about right there, but they, they got thirsty. And they said, we thirst, God. We thirst, Moses. Are we going to die out here? It's an example of their lack of trust. So this chapter shares many connections. However, this, this chapter shares many con- connections to the plan of salvation. See, we have baptism represented in the Red Sea. And then we have three days worth of journey, which we're going to see something pretty interesting take place. However, first we must see how fearful the people are because they did not find any drink or water to drink. As I said, their mentality was likely the memory of having plenty of water in Egypt the place where the Nile provided them with water. In fact, Pharaoh was not only seen as a god in Egypt, but so was the Nile. And Sometimes we don't realize that, but the Nile was also considered a god in Egypt. 
And here again the people are likely reminiscing about some other place that was better than being in the wilderness where they were never afraid if they were going to starve or be thirsty. Rather than recognize they were in the presence of the Almighty God, they murmured, they complained, and they failed to see how powerful God was to provide. This is the very thing they missed because they could not trust from having been enslaved for so long. They were not just in the wilderness, but they were inhabiting the same locale where God, the great I Am, had chosen to reside. See, the promised land was indeed a future place to look forward to, but I wonder if Israel ever viewed their journey with God as a holy habitation or as a place of promise. God provided all their needs in every step of the journey. Sure, they had a land to actually go to, but if God had led them to Canaan and let things in there, I doubt the land would have continued to be as special. The special quality about Israel's promise is that God had determined to dwell among them and work with them to carry out His will. God wants to work with us. He wants to partner with us to see His will fulfilled to see the great things that He desires to do to come to pass. That in and itself, that's a great promise. Therefore, inhabiting the promised land was just as important in the wilderness places as it would be when they finally made it to Canaan. The lessons that they were going to learn about God and His ability in the, in the wilderness would be stuff that they would have to lean on when they entered into those places that He had prepared. The journey is important. Their mentality prevented them from seeing this, and the one generation had to pass away before they would actually be ready. And there will be times that things within us have to pass away in order to take the next step with God in our redemption story. Sometimes we have to put things down. Sometimes we have to walk up to the sea and cast it back in there and say, the redemption's got it. God's got it. God is calling us today to recognize Him in the midst as the Almighty, who is able to provide for every need until the day we finally reap heaven as our reward. He will give us something for our obedience. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Amen. Even moments of tremendous trial. Even moments where it seems like we have nothing or we will have nothing are holy places. Why? Because God is with us. God has planted us. God has went before us. God's desire for us to be involved is the special quality of God's promises. And we can inherit them and inhabit them. Why? Because we're not doing it alone. Why? Because we didn't plan ourselves. When we allow God to do it, that is. With all of this lesson in mind, we take one last look at this text to finalize the point. Moses prayed to God and took a tree, which when he cast into the water made the water sweet and drinkable. Throughout the study I have dedicated to this verse, the translation of tree lands on it being a piece of wood or a piece of evergreen oaks or a shoot, and a shoot is a small branch. Most of the consensus is on it likely being, as I said, a branch. Moses himself cast it into the water, so it couldn't have been a massive 
log or, well, I mean, it could have been a log, but not a whole tree. This is where we have a very powerful image of the branch turning the bitter waters sweet. For Scripture prophesied of a mighty branch. Jeremiah 33 and 15, In those days and at the time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Zechariah 3, 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Zechariah 6, 12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Jesus is referred to as the branch. I think in this story the foreshadowing of the plan of salvation comes to light. Three days after the Red Sea, they find bitter water that is made sweet by the branch. Then you add the well motif to the situation. And I'm briefly explaining the well motif. I'm running out of time. But the well motif, every time a bride was found that was, uh, for, for instance, Rebecca. Rebecca and Zipporah. They were found at the drinking place. And they became brides. In fact, so, in fact anyway, I don't want to get bogged down by describing this too much. But the, the, the fathers went and looked for wives and they always found them at wells or at drinking places where they drew the water. This even happened with the woman at the well, in, in the Samaritan woman, who was also trying to get water. And Jesus says something very inter- interesting to her. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Wow. That living water. Just as Israel drank from Marah, a place that was bitter, that the branch made sweet, so God says, I will transform water. I will transform what you think you're drinking. I'll give you waters of life. I'll give you sweetness into the bitterness of your life. Israel was meant to be a people who blessed all nations. This is a nation God chose for himself, but they could not inherit what God was ultimately planning to do. When he spoke to the woman at the well, a Samaritan, he was foreshadowing to whom he planned to give living water. It was all that were afar off. It was all people. It was even the outcasts of of, of, of society. He had planned to give living water to the people that were expected to, to never be worthy to receive such a gift. That was me. And he gave me water. He gave me living water. Therefore, we see a plan of salvation in Exodus 15, the song of the sea, as God redeemed them through the grave of the, of the Red Sea, and three days later foreshadowed what he would do for his bride as he transformed bitter waters to cause the people he chose for himself to live. So, let me just wrap this up here. So here Israel is. They turn their backs on Egypt. They walk away. They go through the Red Sea. That's their redemption. Think about what Jesus did. He he went into the grave. 
The Red Sea is a symbol of the grave. In three days, Jesus arose. The branch arose. And He came not with just normal water, but He came with living water. Water that would make our lives sweet. See, Exodus 15 isn't just some story. Yeah, it's not just some random story. It's a story about God's power to redeem. God's power to take things that are bitter in our life and make them sweet. God's ability to take woundedness and brokenness and suffering and bondage and say those were waters of bitterness, but the branch has come to make your water sweet today. Today I'm glad I've tasted of that living water. The waters were once bitter in my life, but Jesus made them sweet. God's not only mighty to deliver, He's mighty to provide new life as He provides every day in turning my bitter water sweet. If I need a miracle, today the branch can turn the bitterness of my situation into something sweet. The day I met God was the day I met the branch whose power is mighty to provide, to deliver, to utterly change any circumstance in an instant. I think this story about God, His power, and His people speak to us about who He is in the New Testament. I'm not surprised the branch changed the water to something sweeter when He made wine out of the water. I'm not surprised He makes a way by His word that He breaks the rules, that He multiplies, that He walks upon water, shapes eyes out of mud and calls forth life out of the grave. He's called us out of Egypt. He's called us out of bondage. And He is all in all for His people. Why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise. My song of redemption is, O Lord, You are a way maker. Peace and provision are in Your habitation. The branch of righteousness has turned the bitter waters into something sweet. You go before me preparing the way with all my needs provided in the presence of your glory. Therefore, I will trust in your provision, serve you wherever you plant me, in glory in the habitation of your promised places. Why don't we stand and give the Lord a hand clap of praise one more time today if you believe in God to do those things. Shout in your soul today, O Lord, I believe. Oh Lord, I believe. Oh Lord, you're able. The promises I actually receive will be based on my response today. Think about the confession we have in our hearts based upon the story God's given us of His redemption power in our life. And then consider your response. I'm considering my response today. Why don't we go before the Lord today as we close and ask Him to continue to challenge us and to let us receive this word. Dear God, I give you thanks.